0: Good morning and welcome to Rising. I'm fresh off of a double whammy sessions of Dungeons and Dragons over the weekend, but I'm eager to get into the news now. Bacha, how was your weekend? A little less adventurous than mine, I think.
1: Um, it was a little less game-oriented. Uh, we had a lot of people over for Shabbat. It was really beautiful, a lot of great conversations, but sadly, no Dungeons & Dragons.
0: <laughs> I love uh, the producers of this show are committed to informing our audience at all times of just how big a nerd I actually am. Well, of course, we have a fantastic show for all of you today. Uh, tell us what we're going to get into here, Batya.
1: So News Nation's Brian Enton is going to join us later in the show. We're going to discuss major revelations in the arrest of Idaho murder suspect Brian Koberger. But, uh, plus, we're going to talk through the long COVID hysteria with the New Republic's Natalie Shore. But first, the 118th Congress finally elected Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House after a whopping 15 rounds of voting in a late Friday night showdown that saw tensions boil over on the House floor. Yesterday, Representative Jim Jordan was forced to defend a viral confrontation between Matt Gates and Mike Rogers that appeared to come close to blows. Let's watch it. How do you convince Americans who watch this play out, including this moment, it looked like it could turn into a physical altercation that Republicans, your party can now well. govern?
2: Well, I mean, Shannon, you just you just heard from the uh, the report that Kevin McCarthy got the same number of votes Speaker Pelosi got last time. She had the same majority number, 222, that we have this time. So sometimes democracy is messy, but I would argue that's exactly how the founders intended it.
0: They wanted real debate, real real input from all people, and then you get a decision. Whether it's one vote or 15 votes, Kevin McCarthy is still Speaker of the House. I've seen all kinds of games go into extra innings and overtime. That's just how it works. What I do know is this. We will come together to deal with how radical the left now has made the Democrat Party. Now that the dust has settled, some members of the GOP are not so happy with concessions that Speaker McCarthy made to the Freedom Caucus during negotiations. That includes a rule that allows just a single member of the House to call for a vote to oust the Speaker. The House will have to approve McCarthy's procedural concessions in a rules package. So far, two Republicans, Nancy Mace and Tony Gonzalez, have indicated that they might vote against it. Regardless, McCarthy is optimistic that the Republican majority will successfully tackle a long list of issues that includes border security, China and IRS funding. We'll find out tonight when House Republicans try to pass their rules package. Now, Bacha, you'll be getting into the concessions more in your radar. But do you think McCarthy is going to be able to get this package through for his first major test as House Speaker?
1: So a couple of thoughts. You know, my first is the Democrats love to talk about how, you know, our diversity is our strength, right? They make much of the fact that there's a lot of gender, racial diversity within their ranks, more so than the Republican ranks. But when it came down to it, you know, nobody would oppose Nancy Pelosi, right? She would never bring a vote to the floor if she didn't have the votes. She really ruled like, you know, what, what a, a Republican uh, operative called an apex predator, right? You didn't cross her. And Mm -hmm. there's been, ironically, a lot of sort of you know admiration for that from establishment Republican types last week, as you know, it was clear that Kevin McCarthy was not going to be able to reach that same status at least initially. Um, so for all of the talk about diversity on the Democratic side, when it comes to ideological diversity, there's there's almost none, right? We've been talking a lot. Brianna's been talking a lot about how the progressives completely fail to use any of their power in order to to cross policy in the establishment and the more moderate Democrats, which I might think is good, you know, from a policy point of view, but certainly. It's, it's wrong to call that diversity. Meanwhile, what you're seeing on the Republican side is real debate, real dissent, real discourse, real ideological diversity. And the attempt by the liberal media establishment to cast that in a bad light seems to me to be like really terrible, really telling yeah. on themselves. The
0: contrast yeah. is incredible. Uh, it, yeah, I think you're putting it so correctly on the diversity front, right? Diversity, but it's all about the way people look. It's not diversity of how people actually think and act on the democratic side, whereas on the Republican side, it was tremendous diversity in terms of like ideological interests, political interests, and it was messy and it, I, it was you know spilling it was in front of all of us, somebody got their mouth got grabbed by someone behind them. you know it was a very memeable moment I, I think the true winner of the whole. Uh, a speaker fight was that uh, bad lips reading account on Twitter. I don't know if you saw any of that. Which they're hilarious for what, because we can't actually hear what a, the conversations between. Actually, one point it was Gates and AOC or Gosar and AOC, and it, it's kind of hilarious. But but. like Good, I would argue Substantive policies were being achieved or, or processes That will hopefully allow for good policies Before he didn't even have the processes It was, as you said, apex predator That so describes Nancy Pelosi And previous House leadership uh, An arrangement that came to pass Under you know previous Republican leadership as well And that Kevin McCarthy Gave every indication he would like to return to Of course he wanted to return to that kind of autocracy And it took a real rebellion By some characters of varying motivations, of you know, varying degrees of, of how savory you find them, probably. But uh, I, I think it, you know, it achieves something. I don't know whether this is going to lend itself to good policy, but the point is. Good policy was going to be impossible without some of these changes taking place, without the leadership feeling that there could be a snap vote to remove them, without actual debates taking uh, place on the House floor. And then I'd like some of that stuff in that rules package to really come to pass. You know, I want the investigations at least of, of of. of what we've been funding with respect to COVID and lab leak. Um, I would like, uh, I personally would like a reduction in the, you know, the new IRS agents who I presume are only going to harass, you know, small business owners and Uber drivers, et cetera. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see, but I, I, I think, uh, I think it was definitely worth it if this is, if, if what appears to have come of it. Is, is what we get. It seems absolutely worth it to me. I don't care if it if what it looked bad for who who thinks it looks bad. The mainstream media. Who cares?
1: Right. <laughs> right. And uh, just three more quick points. The first is that um, um, Rogers and Gates have both you know apologized. Gates has said he you know he holds he went on um, I believe it was uh, uh, Fox News and said he doesn't hold it against him at all. Rogers has apologized. That's already clearly in their rearview mirror. Second point. Um, Jim Jordan was nominated multiple times. Um, And he did not vote for himself. He continued to vote for McCarthy. He said, "I don't want this job. I don't want to be the speaker. I have bigger fish to fry um, in the judiciary committee." I I think that's very admirable. I did not expect to see that from Jim Jordan. Um, And it's hard for me to imagine somebody on the Democratic side doing that, giving up this powerful position in order to actually investigate and legislate, sort of in a more behind-the-scenes role. So I was I was impressed to see that. And the third thing I'll I'll just say is, you know, I can't help but feel. That the Democrats don't want to see what was the biggest reform to my mind, which is no more omnibuses, single Mm. issue bills, narrow bills on single issues, because it's going to force them to vote with Republicans on important things. For example, the Guaranteeing Truckers Overtime Act, which I really hope um, will will get to the floor, because it will force them to vote on single issues that are important to the American people. Um, And I think that that, you cannot overstate the importance of this to bipartisanship and to actually delivering for the American people. Um, Meanwhile, uh, Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries had this to say in reaction to McCarthy as Majority Leader.
2: On this first day, I do not pretend to answer that question on behalf of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, but we do extend our hand of partnership to you and want to make clear that we extend and intend to try to find common ground whenever and wherever possible on behalf of the American people. Not as Democrats, not as Republicans, not as Independents, but as Americans. But I also wanna make clear that we will never compromise our principles.
1: So Robbie, now that the GOP holds the House, how do you foresee President Biden's second term going in terms of his agenda?
0: Well, at this point, we have divided government, so that's the end of, you know, any legislating going on. Republicans control the House, so there will be investigations, um, I, you know, I think, into some of the uh, very merited investigations into, you know, pressure that law enforcement has placed on social media companies. That's something I'm talking about in my radar today. Um, uh, you know, what was going on with gain-of-function research, uh, the, the Hunter Biden investigation. And, and with the Hunter Biden investigation, more so I don't... <laughs> It should be about what law enforcement did to prevent people from finding out about that story. If they slow rolled the investigation, you know, not the nitty gritty of you know what Hunter Biden did, unless they do have evidence. And I, I suppose I, I shouldn't rule that out that there actually was some influence peddling going all the way up to Biden himself. That you know that would be an issue. Let's not make it a show trial of Hunter Biden himself. But which you know a, he's a flawed person doesn't really matter. He's not a government official. We need to know if it impugns Biden and then what law enforcement did about it. That needs to happen on the Biden's. Side, you know, I don't think there's going to be a, a lot of legislating. Um, I would love if what comes out of these new powers that uh, that, you know, that actual members of the House have is that we don't do governing via last minute debt ceiling raising, you know, with nobody having time to read the actual bill, um, a bill that no one can vote against. You know, be reckless to vote against it because the whole economy, the whole like global economy will crash if you vote against it. That's extortion. Like, that's not actual legislating. We need, you know, c- cuts to parts of government that american citizens don't think is worth funding anymore we need conversations about and that includes things that democrats have have questions about defunding or some democrats in the past have had questions about the defense budget you know the the old Regime used to be that you know Republicans want to you know blow up the uh, defense budget forever and then cut social services. Democrats the the opposite, or you know they want more funding for social services and then they'd rather take it out of defense. With with the new kind of democratic liberal, like defending Ukraine is my entire personality. I'm not even sure how they feel about defense (laughs) budgets anymore. But absolutely, the American people (laughs) have questions about our spending, including I I think in my. This is what I gather from, you know, kind of gauging where the people are at. I think the people have a lot of questions about our defense budget in addition to everything else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Foreign wars and immigration, that's how Trump won. Those are issues that are incredibly important to the American people. Um, Hope we're gonna see some, you know, debate, some real debate on the House floor about these issues.
0: That would be tremendous. All right, our radars are coming up next. Stay with us for that.
1: What's on your radar? Well, we know that the Twitter files have
0: exposed the federal government's efforts to compel a private company, Twitter, to censor speech that was disfavored by the national intelligence agencies, national health experts, and elites in the mainstream media. Despite the protections of the First Amendment, which provides that the government may not stop people from speaking, various government actors have worked tirelessly to silence speech for years, taking special aim at so called misinformation related to elections, Hunter Biden, COVID, and more. Now, thanks to efforts by Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, Lee Feng, and of course, Twitter's new CEO himself, Elon Musk we have now seen behind the curtain. We have seen so many emails from would-be censors in government reaching out to Twitter, politely suggesting that this account is Russian in origin and up to no good, that this other account is is wrong about the COVID vaccines and it's going viral and that's a danger, that this joke about what day the election takes place on, well, that could be misinterpreted by a gullible person. The government would love if Twitter would do something to fix this. Government bureaucrats know they can't make Twitter do it, But they can complain, then they can leak the situation to their friends in the mainstream media who'll write negative stories about Twitter, and they can make sure those stories provide ammunition for Democratic legislators who just so happen to be looking at new regulations that could hurt Twitter's bottom line. Hmm. Continuing dispatches from the Twitter files have actually undermined an early impression formed by so many people, myself included about content moderators at Twitter. I, I namely Joel Roth, a former head of Twitter Trust and Safety. Roth was initially portrayed as a villain in all this for taking part in some admittedly bad content moderation calls including the decision to restrict the Hunter Biden laptop story under a hacked materials justification. Very bad. But after reading all those emails from law enforcement, national intelligence, health advisors, It's clear that Roth actually did put up some resistance, and as did his colleagues, their resolve was simply worn down over time by the tone of the government's messages. The government was insistent that Twitter was besieged by evil Russian influence, that Twitter's failure to control COVID misinformation was going to get millions killed, that the mainstream media and Democratic lawmakers would work in tandem to gut Twitter. If the platform failed to take action against such pressure, it's really not surprising that government bureaucrats eventually got their way, and in the future, opponents of big tech censorship need to focus more on the big government side of all of this. To that end, new evidence is emerging that shows, unsurprisingly, that Twitter was not the only target of the US government's unsupri- of the US government, which is unsurprising, as part of a lawsuit against the Biden administration for pressuring social media companies to take down contrarian COVID speech, Missouri's attorney general obtained this email sent by a White House staffer to Facebook moderators. It reads, the top post about vaccines today is Tucker Carlson saying they don't work. Yesterday was Tommy Lauren saying she won't take one. This is exactly why I want to know what reduction looks like. If reduction means pumping our most vaccine-hesitant audience with Tucker Carlson saying it doesn't work, then I'm not sure it's reduction. A White House staffer also flagged specific contrarian Facebook posts for deletion. The White House was obsessed with what kinds of opinions were being offered, not just on Twitter, but obviously on Facebook as well. They don't think whether the vaccines work is a subject one could hold a variety of views on, even though it's certainly true that the vaccines work to differing degrees depending on what we're talking about. Are we Are talking about severe disease and death, or are we talking about simply uh, the COVID spread? And it matters a little bit whether we're talking about vulnerable people or whether we're talking about young people. None of these distinctions mattered to the career bureaucrats who were in conversation every single day with content moderators at all the major speech platforms. Stay tuned for a big investigation that I've been working on on the subject that will be coming later this month. But in the meantime, I want to talk more about, you know, what we've seen from these emails, Bacha, the Twitter files, and then this email showing that, well, of course, it's, it was happening with Facebook um, as well. Tucker Carlson, Tommy Lauren, too, uh Tucker's a, a Fox News person. Tommy has, I think, uh, also—she's also part of Fox, uh, I think, on the Fox Nation platform and some Fox other Nation, places. Yeah. Outkick, Yeah. Um, You know, two people, uh, conservative voices who are putting uh, raising questions about the efficacy of the vaccines. I'm sure they've said things about COVID and about the vaccines that I personally don't agree with, that I don't think are supported by the evidence, as has basically everyone who's ever offered an opinion on this thing, given that the reality is ever changing, uh, including what that elites and the health experts said is now vast is vastly different. What's true is vastly different than what they said in the first place. So it, it seems pretty Uh, Egregious and baffling to me that the White House would spend significant time, like, don't they have better things to do? Just emailing (laughs) Twitter and Facebook all day saying, hey, can you take this down? Hey, this isn't exactly right. Hey, we're really worried about this. Like, what's your problem?
1: Yeah, so a number of questions um, come to mind for me. The first is Is there um, a difference for you in how they handled the Hunter Biden laptop story and how they handled COVID? Uh, To me, the difference there is very much a difference of intention. Like with COVID, you could say, "I I I don't think it was right. But they did in either Mm -hmm. case. Um, But you could argue with COVID that they were trying to save lives, that they felt that people not taking the vaccine was going to put them in danger, right? Uh, But with with Hunter Biden, it was like clearly just their political adversaries. They really, really, really didn't want Trump to win, right? So that's the first question I have. Is there a moral difference and a legal difference between those two things from your point of view? The second question I have is the one I've had from the beginning, which is, um, you know... If law enforcement asks you to do something wrong, right, um, you know, do you what level of freedom of speech do you still have in making that decision? What level of um, authority and autonomy did Yoel Roth have here? Um, At what point does it become coercion? And Mm -hmm. are you convinced that that threshold has been met Um, You know, and of course, the third question would be, um, you know, how are we supposed to judge this going forward as a nation? Um, You know, the the church committee that was one of these... um, um, uh, conditions that McCarthy has agreed to uh, in order to convince the holdouts to vote for him as speaker? Do you think that that is going to address these larger mm. questions? So those so are my three questions for you.
0: I do think the threshold has been reached. I mean, I think it's a matter for debate. It's, it's, uh, In my opinion, it's, it's been reached. I think between the pressure, the constant pressuring from so many different government agencies, uh, and then at the same time, there's going to be a regulatory push. And then people in the Biden White House raising the prospect of doing regulation if they don't get enough compliance from social media companies. That seems to me to be—now we're on the other side of the First Amendment. I could be wrong. I think that's something a court should take up. That is something a court is going to take up, given this uh, lawsuit from Missouri. And other states. Um, uh, your first question is very interesting, and and this is something I've I've gr- I've tried to engage with at least. Is there a difference between the pressuring on COVID speech and the pressuring on Hunter Biden? I could actually see it the other way from you, and you know you're kind of suggesting that the the, the uh, Hunter Biden stuff is, is just so nakedly political, where there's like a a, 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 a compared to the COVID stuff. Well, well you know they might have been wrong, and maybe they shouldn't have done it, but they, their intentions were more benign. I see it, I guess, slightly differently. I think, I think we all accept that there's some, leg- some legitimacy, at least, to law enforcement talking to social media companies about crimes happening on social media sites, um, uh, uh, organized crime, terrorism, et cetera, being organized on the platform from, like, a national security, foreign policy standpoint— uh, now, obviously, the deep state went so awry on this and was so wrong about so many things. And, you know, they're telling Twitter this is Russian origin and Twitter saying, oh, we're looking at this. We really don't think it is. And then eventually they're like, OK, if you say so. Um, so it, it, they're so clumsy and bad at it. But I think probably most people would accept there's some legitimate—like, if, if ISIS has a Facebook group and then the CIA says, hey, we want you to take down this group. I would probably say, and you, and, and probably most people would say, that's not necessarily nefarious for our government to do that. Compared to—now, that's—on the other hand, I don't really think—I think what the CDC and, and then the White House and other uh, health people did to social media, you can call it benign, but it falls, to my mind, way, far further outside the scope of government, um, from a, even from a public a public health standpoint, saying— Like there's, to my mind, national security and law enforcement and like prevention of crime is government's legitimacy, not Mm -hmm. like trying to control speech related to public health. So for me, it's almost the opposite.
1: I think that's a really good point, and especially um, because we know now that the facts around vaccines are so much more complicated than they wanted us to believe. And there really was an absence of public debate about that, that that could have had an impact on some people's health, especially young men we know with myocarditis. So I I take your point. That's a really, really interesting argument. Um, And we will we will have more rising right after this.
0: What's on your radar, Bacha?
1: Well, the chaos surrounding whether California Congressman Kevin McCarthy would achieve the votes necessary to become Speaker of the House finally ended late Friday night in victory for McCarthy. It took 15 ballot counts for the small faction of Republicans who opposed McCarthy to finally vote for him or vote present, which enabled him to win the speakership after a week of obstruction. The liberal media seemed intent on casting the opposition to McCarthy as coming from the MAGA wing of the GOP. But this was obviously wrong. America First stalwarts like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan were firmly in McCarthy's camp from day one, as was former President Trump himself. And none of the demands of the holdouts seemed like things you could call part of the America First platform. No one seemed to be saying that in order to earn their vote, McCarthy needed to commit to securing the southern border, for example, or to commit to ending the blank check to Ukraine, something he would promised before the midterm elections. Others, especially in the Obstructor's own party, cast the rebels' refusal to vote for McCarthy as indefensible, the outgrowth of personal animus and attention-seeking. And there was ample evidence for this view. The first candidate to put forth, as an, put forth as an alternative to McCarthy, Andy Biggs, was nominated in a speech by Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar that lasted less than a minute, much of which was taken up by repetitions of the phrase, Washington is broken.
2: America knows that Washington is broken. The power doesn't reside in the speaker. It doesn't in the majority leader, nor the minority leader, nor the whips. The power resides in we, the people, the people entrusted us here, each individual member, to represent their district, their state, and the federal government. Washington's broken. We're the last ones to know. A wise person once told me, good process builds good policy, builds good politics. We've got to return to that. It is with that that I place the name of my friend and colleague from Arizona, Annie Biggs, for Speaker of the House. Thank you.
1: So not much to sink your teeth into by way of substantive demands there, which is why I and so many others initially greeted the rebel faction with some amount of skepticism. But get to say something I love saying. I was wrong. Things started to shift when Texas Congressman Chip Roy stunned the House by nominating Florida Congressman Byron Donalds on day three of the speaker saga on the fourth ballot count. Now, Donalds is black, which meant that his nomination joined the Democrats' unanimous pick to lead their party, New York Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, to make it the first time two black men had been selected to lead their respective parties. It was something Roy pointed out in his nomination speech, to a standing ovation by both parties.
3: Here we are, and for the first time in history, there have been two black Americans placed into the nomination for Speaker of the House.
1: What had started as far right dissent within the Republican Party had suddenly brought the two parties closer together, stealing the Democrats' historic limelight in nominating Jeffries and sharing the glory of this historic moment. Now, historic moments like this do matter, representation matters, and Black Americans deserve to have a choice between two parties like every other American. So it's really important and moving when Republicans choose to get behind Black leaders. But Roy took it beyond identity politics. He mentioned specific issues he thought Donald would lead better at. And those items included things that are genuinely important and genuinely America first. Rather than just platitudes about Washington being broken, Roy explained why a change in leadership was important and why resistance to McCarthy was important, specifically in the name of debate. Watch.
3: We should be in here having this kind of a conversation with this many people in the room about Ukraine. And we should debate the merits and we should debate the ups and downs of being involved. We should debate the forty five billion dollars. We should debate whether it should be more or less. We should debate whether it should be paid for. We should debate what the result we should demand. The only way you're going to get that is, is if you change the rules and have the leadership to advance the rules to make sure that we can do that.
1: This was the first time that endless funding for forever wars came up explicitly in the speaker drama and Roy was indisputably right we should be having a debate on Ukraine and the 45 billion dollars we sent over there. There is certainly no consensus for that among the American people. The consensus for it in Congress was born out of how leaders like Nancy Pelosi wielded their power, squashing even the half-hearted attempt by progressive lawmakers to voice even the tiniest level of dissent. If the conditions that the holdouts were stipulating were truly focused on elevating debate and enshrining a way to combat the deadly neoliberal consensus, then I have to admit I was wrong. Those were things worth holding out for. And indeed... When a list of concessions McCarthy had acceded to emerged after the 15th ballot, Many of the items were undeniably good for our nation, whatever side of the aisle you happen to be on. McCarthy agreed to create a church committee to investigate the weaponization of the FBI against US citizens, something anybody who cares about civil liberties should be happy to see. He also agreed to give members at least 72 hours to review bills before they come to the floor for a vote. And he agreed to more single issue narrow bills instead of the omnibus behemoths we've become accustomed to. These are undeniably good reforms that will make it much more likely for things to move in Congress, and it will almost certainly increase bipartisanship. And McCarthy also agreed to a Texas border plan and an end to all COVID mandates and fundings, things that are incredibly important to the American people. These are huge wins and a true humbling for progressives who have failed to wield their power in this way, as Brianna has been pointing out all week. There were, of course, other concessions, including that any member can fire McCarthy on his or her own, and more Freedom Caucus representatives will be seated on committees. McCarthy also agreed to tie any raising of the debt ceiling to cuts in spending. But the final list is full of important wins for democracy that were only there because of the stubborn willingness of a few members of Congress to face down the ire of 400 colleagues and the entire media establishment, myself, unfortunately, in the beginning included. (laughs) Judging by the speeches of the new House majority and House minority leaders, the relief that the concession of the rebels brought is already softening the divide between the parties. In his speech, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries focused on the power of diversity, the wealth of opportunity in America, and working together to find common ground, quote, whenever and wherever possible.
2: America, truly a land of opportunity. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So on this first day, let us commit to the American dream, a dream that promises that if you work hard and play by the rules, you should be able to provide a comfortable living for yourself and for your family, educate your children, purchase a home, and one day retire with grace and dignity. Let us commit on this first day to lift up the American dream for every single person in this nation. What direction will we choose? On this first day, I do not pretend to answer that question. On behalf of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. But we do extend our hand of partnership to you and want to make clear that we extend and intend to try to find common ground whenever and wherever possible on behalf of the American people. Not as Democrats, not as Republicans not as independents, but as Americans.
1: You just love to hear it. And his speech was greeted with applause and Democrats on their feet chanting USA. Then, after greeting Jeffries with a hug, McCarthy went on to speak about transparency, public debate, hearings on the border, and a select committee to investigate offshoring jobs to China. But he spent the second half of his speech on similar themes to Jeffries, diversity, inclusivity, and honoring President Lincoln's legacy, building bridges across the aisle.
2: This moment calls for restoring trust within our country and with each other. In that spirit... I will work with anyone and everyone who shares our passion to deliver a better future for the nation. I hope you'll join me. As a Congress, we can only operate if we cooperate. My door will be open. I'd like you to come by if we let everybody in the boat, if we row. In the same cadence together, there is no obstacle this body can overcome for this nation.
1: The similarity between Jeffrey's speech and McCarthy's was pretty astonishing to me anyway, uh, delivered by a week of raucous debate and dissent. What started out looking like dissent for its own sake ended up bringing the Republicans and Democrats closer together. Around the values this great nation was founded on, than they have been in recent history and perhaps ever. In other words, what we were treated to last week was a true example of e pluribus unum, from the many, one. So, Robbie, I hope you'll forgive my slightly uh, Pollyanna ish (laughs) reading of the events of last week, but I really think that I saw this wrong. You know, I started out the week thinking that you know, where is the policy demand? Where is the America first demand? Where are the things that the American people would want to see? And I ended up the week, especially looking at that list of concessions, thinking, what an achievement. Um, And you know what, it just took a week. It didn't take, you know, months, it didn't take a year, took a week. Um, And they achieved quite a few goals that I think most Americans will Mm -hmm. be very happy to see. So I really shifted how I saw um, the dissent. How did you how are you thinking about things? Well,
0: I, I think the reason some people, uh, including a lot of people in conservative media, they were so frustrated with um, the effort to uh, thwart McCarthy uh, because when they were talking about him, by they, I mean Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, etc., it seemed very personal and very anti-McCarthy himself, and I think a lot of people had a hard time saying, What's so bad about McCarthy compared to any other Republican leader? You know, are saying, well, he's captured by Wall Street. Is that not true of the others? It seemed very personal, and that was hard to relate to. But you're absolutely right that under that surface of kind of a personal conflict, there was every reason to hold out and to push for reforms that will hopefully allow actual debates in the House on issues like funding for Ukraine, like anything. We interviewed uh, Justin Amash, former congressman uh, from Michigan, on the show last week, and he he said the same thing, you know, despite not having any personal Real preference for, for not McCarthy versus someone else. He was like, look, the role of the speaker has just become so autocratic um, it, it, over the last 10 years. So it would be great to get on paper those reforms that will make the House just fulfill its function more readily to the American people of having actual democracy take place. And it was so gross to have the mainstream media condemning that as embarrassing, when it's embarrassing for legislators to try to take claw back some ability to actually debate policy issues in the House. So that's not it. Maybe that's embarrassing to the mainstream media, but to, to no one else finds that distasteful. And, the, you know, the whole circus of the thing, yes, yes, it was entertaining. It was a bit of a circus. It did, it lasted one week. We're not really going to be, I mean, we politicos might be bringing this up still, but I don't think, I don't think the—honestly, I don't know that how, much, how closely the American people paid attention to this at all, but they will benefit from reforms that, that lend themselves to actually having policy debates in the House. That can only be to, to, the, to the benefit of the American people, in my view.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a huge difference between how Matt Gates approached this and how Chip Roy approached yes, this. Yes,
0: absolutely. You know,
1: Matt Gates clearly has personal animus toward McCarthy, clearly did not have very many, you know, substantive objections, and clearly was using this to get on, you know, to get on cable TV and then to try to push for himself to be seated on committee. It seems very clear that his objection was far less principled. But Chip Roy apparently has been, you know, pushing for these things for a long time, for months um, in, in, in conversations with McCarthy. And there was reports. Reporting that there was a real shift against McCarthy after a very contentious Tuesday um, conference call in which he seemed to project a sense that he deserved this, right? Which to mm-hmm. your point about it being an autocratic position, I think that was when a lot of um, Republicans who maybe would have been in his camp decided instead to join the defectors. And, you know, like I said, I, you know, I think we, we agree, you know, mm-hmm. it does seem like a lot of good things have come out of it.
0: Mm. Well, thank you very much, Bacha. We'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us.
1: Columnist at The New Republic, Natalie Shore, has recently reported on symptoms of long COVID. Last month, she published an article saying that we might have gotten long COVID all wrong.
0: She poses the following, some post-COVID symptoms may be produced by the brain, but does that make them any less real? Columnist at The New Republic, Natalie Shore, joins us now to discuss her article. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I read the article and I I really enjoyed it. It's very thorough, very long, very nuanced, very well reported. Um, And then it was getting a lot of blowback, I saw, from people on social media who are very all about long COVID and how debilitating it is, et cetera. But you don't, you're not arguing, and I, I want to you know, give you a minute here to kind of summarize what your findings are and what your thesis is. But you're not saying long COVID doesn't exist, but you're saying that kind of the way we're talking about it isn't quite, um, you know, matching the reality of what data is, is, is revealing. So why don't you explain that at greater length?
4: Sure. I think that there are a whole lot of people who are very debilitated and very ill, uh, and that's an awful thing, and my heart goes out to people who are experiencing these symptoms. Uh, I think that long COVID is a phrase that describes a lot of different things that are probably different disease processes at play. Some of them are just lasting symptoms from severe illness. We know that that is the case, that that is something that happens. Uh, I think that other symptoms are in all likelihood driven by psychosocial distress which isn't a patient's choice. It's not something that they're doing on purpose. And it's actually one of the hardest problems in medicine to solve. Uh, we know this from other illnesses that are driven largely by psychosocial distress, things like uh, depression, things like addiction. Uh, I think that there are better models for looking at what's going on and looking at what might be the best way to treat these patients.
1: Yeah. and article, you do such a great job of uh, discussing this in terms of sort of hardware versus software problems. And I was thinking a lot about fibromyalgia, for example, which is kind of one of these software problems where somebody is experiencing true distress, but it is, it's, it's, it's more manifesting in the brain. And like you say, psychosocial distress. So walk us through what the difference would be in terms of a medical and a public policy approach to responding to something if it is psychosocial software rather than physical, let's say, somatic hardware?
4: Sure. So the software hardware analogy is something that people who study functional disorders uh, really use to try to explain it. Uh, functional disorders, I opened my piece with a woman who has something called functional neurological disorder. Uh, for a long time, this woman couldn't walk. She was incredibly debilitated. She at one point lived in a nursing home believing that she was going to die uh, before she got diagnosed with functional neurological disorder from a supportive clinician and was able to, um, you know, with the help of different rehabilitative uh, exercises, to basically become somewhat better. Um, I think that something that's driven by psychosocial distress uh, means that perhaps the best way or the best shot that they have of getting better, and this is very difficult even with best case scenario, is, you know, adjusting some of the context. Of their life. And that's why one of the things that I really end with is that I think that reducing the amount of suffering in the world through redistribution, through universal health care, things of that nature, uh, is probably going to do the most to reduce suffering on a broad scale
0: right and and the reason you know what you're saying and you're describing it here doesn't really sound controversial at all but it, there is a you know a community of people really pushing to get angry when you say things like that because they're saying no this is you know lingering complications in if, of the actual sort of respiratory disease right of the actual conditions causing brain fog brain fog and pain and 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 anxiety and and being tired all the time uh, and you're, you're not saying, if you're experiencing those things, if your brain is telling you to experience those things, it is real because we don't experience anything outside our brain. But if you look at the evidence and you look at the data, it's, it's much harder to draw direct correlation between necessarily the, the, the disease component of the disease itself. You know, given that, I, I know that some of the people, you know, who say they're suffering from long COVID, or at least early on in the pandemic, now virtually everyone's had it, but at least early on, then they looked and those people had never actually had COVID, which makes you say, so it has to be, there has to be a component of it at least that could be, the, you know, the trauma of what we've all gone through or of watching loved ones die or, you know, of losing a job or what, economic stresses, all those things. Again, doesn't not saying it's not real, but that's just not the way a lot of the kind of long COVID zealous people are, are describing it.
4: I think that I think that that's true. Um, I, I think overall what, what you're saying I think is mostly correct and it means that there is unlikely to be a biopharmaceutical cure for mm-hmm. long COVID. There's never going to be something that looks like penicillin for brain fog. Uh, this is a, a symptom that's incredibly debilitating. It affects a lot of people, not just in long COVID and other illnesses too, including illnesses that, you know, Things like cancer, people have debilitating brain fog, and medicine has struggled to solve these problems. We do have a few tools, but I just don't think they're going to come from the pharmaceutical industry. And we have, you know, examples. I mean, take. Havana Syndrome, I think we interviewed you about that
0: on the show, which is not, again, not saying people's pain is not real. People are experiencing something <laughs> in their brain that is distressing them, but we can't find any evidence, you know, for any of the, the claims about it, that you, for the various, re, you know, a psionic weapon or, or whatever it was that could be causing it. There's no evidence of any of that, not saying it's not real. It's just not described by, by, by like, a literal thing.
4: Yeah, I think that Havana syndrome showed us that it's it's very easy to understand how someone could ascribe very real suffering to something that's not the proximal cause of that suffering. Uh, I think that, you know, in the case of Havana syndrome, it was a lot more serious of a problem. I think that their narrative, that there was uh, a hostile foreign actor chasing Americans around the world and shooting them with ray guns, I think that Nipping that narrative and being very emphatic about why that narrative is wrong is more important. It's more damaging. Uh, But I think that, you know, the way that the long COVID narrative is emerging is empowering quacks, is maybe stopping people from getting better Mm -hmm. and turning people away from solutions, especially on a broader level. Uh, so I think that they're, the narratives are doing different things, uh, but I do think that they are similar in the respect that these are sick people, these are people who are ill, uh, and I think that they're not, they're not grasping uh, a story that best explains why that is.
0: Hmm. Well, on that front, last week, Washington Post technology columnist Taylor Lorenz uh, retweeted this, the eugenic undertone surrounding COVID policy has really shocked me. It has challenged my views of us as a society public health policy now based on survival of the fittest those who don't make it are dismissed as dry kindling i really thought we were better than that and i you know i saw uh, along the similar vein calls for your article to be retracted or corrected or something you know this is coming from people who who uh, like I'll see they'll describe in their Twitter bios that, you know, the long covid sufferer. It, it's like becoming an aspect of one's personality for some people um, in, in a way that that does not seem healthy to me, frankly. And um, it's almost like doubling down on this being a permanent condition of the disease that I, I think would if it's more along the lines of what you're talking about, it seems like, if anything, it would just reinforce it.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't blame anyone on an individual level for, you know, what they're grasping for. Again, these are these are people who are suffering severely, who in a lot of cases don't have a lot of power. And I think they're finding solace in this identity. Um, but I, I do think in general, um, you know, uh, accusations of eugenics aside, uh, <laughs> I do think that, you know, building a better society, having more social support, for people to be able to take time off, to be able to recover from whatever illness it is that they do have, uh, I think would would, would look uh, make society look a lot better. And I do wish that there were more distributive policies, more social programs that would come out of this pandemic, and that I would rather be talking about those than some of the minutiae that are, are advanced by these camps.
1: Uh, real quick before we wrap, Natalie, is there any data about who gets long COVID? Is this something, are women more prone to it? Are certain k- kinds of people, what is, do we have any data about who it is primarily being afflicted by this or is it evenly distributed?
4: Well, so that's a difficult question to answer for a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, a lot of the data that we do have is about anyone who has lingering symptoms let's say, 12 weeks after their initial infection. And that's going to include some of the people with, um, you know, this this classic type of long COVID that has been centered in the media narrative, people with, um, you know, post-exertional malaise and uh, fatigue and brain fog. Um, that will include people like that, but it will also include someone who was on a ventilator for five weeks and is now having some difficulty breathing afterwards. So those are um, typically different different types of patients. Um, that there's, there's not a lot of commonality between them. Um, I, I think for the most part, especially when you get to more than 12 weeks out, when you have the more prolonged illness um, that is marked by fatigue and brain fog, um, it tends to be more women than men, um, and you know, it's it's hard to say where they're getting the research cohort. I think that we have a lot of research in general that shows us that. Uh, poor people, people who suffer oppression, people who have more difficult lives, more difficult jobs, certainly have more, you know, chronic pain, um, chronic fatigue, and they might not necessarily identify as being long COVID or ME-CFS patients. So hmm. it's, it's murky. But in general, uh, I think that oppression and poverty drives illness and that rates are higher among those people.
0: Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Mm. We'll have more Rising right after this.
1: Podcaster Joe Rogan issued an apology for running a fake tweet related to the COVID vaccine in a recent episode of the Joe Rogan experience. Rogan featured a tweet that looked as if Dr. Natalia Solenkova, a Florida intensive care specialist, composed it. But as it turns out, it was doctored. The fake tweet read, quote, I will never regret the vaccine, even if it turns out I injected actual poison and have only days to live. My heart is and was in the right place. I got vaccinated out of love, while anti-vaxxers did everything out of hate. If I have to die, because of my love for the world then so be it but I will never regret or apologize for it.
0: Rogan's team took the episode down and cut out the bit that centered around the fake tweet. Rogan further apologized for the incident saying quote "Uh, I was informed last night that this tweet is fake. The show was already out so we initially decided to post a notice saying we got tricked then later thought it best to just delete it from the episode. My sincere apologies to everyone especially the person who was hoaxed. Good on him for doing that. Um, You shouldn't you know, share fake doctored tweets. I think it's embarrassing when people obviously get caught sharing them. I'm sure it's happened to me before. It's probably happened to you before. The thing you do is just apologize, get rid of it, and very good on him for doing that. Plenty of people in the mainstream media and in progressive media get— by the same, uh, the opposite kinds of things, opposite from that message, fake tweets, you know, having the opposite kind of uh, effect, and then don't do anything about them. I I saw a bunch of people over the weekend, did you see this, Batya, sharing the, I can't believe we're doing the white nationalist hand gesture thing again. Um, I saw Nina Turner, who's a former um, progressive state senator, I believe we've interviewed her on the show, and and now I think she's a correspondent, perhaps, for the Young Turks. She was sharing, uh, George Santos um, you know, everybody's yeah. favorite congressperson for the moment was um, seen, you know, doing doing this thing. Um, and there was a photo of it. And they're like, oh, that's the white nationalist hand gesture. It's just the OK sign. Ninety nine point nine percent of people who do that have no idea that it has been associated with white nationalism. It, it, they're not trying. They're not trolling. It's not a trick. It's just it also just means, OK. And most people who do that, uh, I don't mean it in the white nationalist sense. White nationalists do it in order to trick you into thinking everyone is a white nationalist. Anyway, that, that was, so that was something going around this weekend. So I, I just point that out to, to say that a lot of people fall for really dumb things and then double down on being dumb and wrong and don't do anything to fix it.
1: Yeah, and it was so funny because the LA Times article about Joe Rogan apologizing for getting tricked, admitting it to his audience, asking for forgiveness, you know, had this snide comment in it like, you know, Rogan, you know, was, you know, controversial and accused of spreading COVID misinformation. And it's like, this is literally the opposite of spreading misinformation, right? This is getting something wrong and then admitting it, which is something that Dr. Fauci and many others <laughs> have been incapable of doing, right? This is exactly how you are straightforward and honest. Of course, people mm. should double check things. Of course, everyone, myself included, sometimes gets things wrong and gets tricked. It's very hard to, you know, but, but, you know, it's apparently very hard for people when it comes to COVID, when it comes to the left-wing media to admit that. But I think, you know, k- kudos to to Rogan for doing that. Um, you know, that wasn't the only conspiracy theory, though, circulating over the weekend. Conspiracies have also circulated about the cause of Bill's football, player DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest, which he suffered on the field during a game last week. Uh, people went so far to attribute the cardiac issues he sustained to the COVID-19 vaccine. Here is Dr. Fauci's reaction to that.
2: The thing as a public health person and as a physician and a scientist and my my identity as a physician is the thing that gets pained the
5: most by that, because what that means, Major, is that Yet again, another conspiracy theory, complete nonsense, is going to have some people make a decision for themselves and their family not to get vaccinated, which may
2: cost them their lives. So that's the thing that's so horrible about it. And if you want to go out spouting nonsense, conspiracy theories and spreading it all around,
5: fine, except if it results in a person suffering and perhaps dying. And that's what happens when disinformation disincentivizes people to get proper interventions for
0: a threat like a pandemic. Fauci went on to say that myocarditis post the COVID vaccine is rare. And I, I think what he was saying there, I, I'm sorry, I find so frustrating because he, he keeps saying people might die if they don't take the vaccine because you know they're worried about myocarditis. Okay, people. Let's, let's break that down a little further. Are people in DeMar Hamlin's age range, health profile, et cetera, are they at significant risk? Are they at virtually any risk of dying of COVID? And we know the answer is no. Now, I don't think my reading of the data suggests to me they're also not particularly vulnerable or at risk for vaccine-related myocarditis. It's, this seems to be very rare, So I don't agree with, like, the vaccine opponents who are saying, you know, myocarditis is spiking everywhere and it's because of the vaccine. You know, we know that COVID actually itself can cause myocarditis. And, you know, there's so many people who have had COVID and have had the vaccine. So even if they then did experience myocarditis, it would be hard to ascribe it to one or the other. Looks to me like... It, it is a r- very rare occurrence. So the vex- I'm, So I'm not like contesting what he's saying about the vaccine generally being safe, but also COVID is not particularly harmful for the age range we're talking about when we're talking about DeMar Hamlin type people. So you can't, like, it's not, you know, some certainly some otherwise healthy people have just dropped out of COVID, but for the most part, you know, we're, we're talking about people who are immunocompromised or the elderly. Those people, I think the calculation for whether they should get the vaccine is pretty obvious, although I would still leave it to them. But that's different than saying, like, a DeMar Hamlin-type person would be at risk if he wasn't vaccinated. And he, just, he totally collapses those distinctions. It seems to me it's proper to have distinctions based on what your age range is and what your health profile is for whether you get vaccinated or whether you get boosted or how many times you would get boosted. All of that is going to be a factor, and he just, he just ignores all of that.
1: Here's my question. Why the huge empathy gap among liberals between people who have long COVID Mm -hmm. and young men who experience myocarditis, sometimes in small cases related to the vaccine, there is an enormous empathy gap there. It seems like they want us talking about long COVID all the time, Mm -hmm. but they won't, they have no compassion for these young men. Sure, maybe it's a really small number of them. Yeah. But I, I can't help but feel it's because young men are sort of at the bottom of some kind of pecking order where they just don't matter and their suffering doesn't matter and their issues don't matter. Um, you know, it, it, look, it may be a tiny proportion of them, but these are people who would have been completely healthy, who have now enormous um, health problems due to something they were told would save their lives. Right. I, th- there's something about that that is extremely upsetting. And we can say that without exaggerating the number of people who've been impacted by this and just say that they too are worthy of compassion and worthy of being part of the story. Right. I mean, they call it a, a genocide, right. Um, or, or ethnic, what did she call it in that tweet about, you know, if we don't take long COVID seriously enough, it's some sort of eugenics, right. That's what she, they, they, it was mm-hmm. called by by, by um, a, a liberal commentator this weekend for people who refuse to to adjust our behavior as a society to cater to the small percentage of people who have long COVID, right? But they won't even give these young men any attention and the choice. Right. If you're if you're in a major. I don't know. I don't know what happened to DeMar Hamlin. But yeah. if you're if you are an athlete, you are not given a choice. And if you are a person who has these symptoms, you get no sympathy and no compassion. And I, I think that's really wrong. And it's it's it really bothers me because they were they were deprived of. First of all, we were all deprived of the debate, but then they, they are systematically deprived of the kind of compassion that people with much less severe problems consistently demand, you know, that we all cater to. And and I think that's wrong.
0: Yeah, and I just don't understand why it can't be different for different people. I I mean, I think it should be a choice regardless of where you fall in, but for the health officials to say, hey, you know what, you're in your 80s, COVID presents a risk to you even in its diminished form, please get vaccinated and probably get boosted every year. You're in your 50s and you're overweight. Yeah, COVID could be something, you know, you might wanna get a booster this year. Your 20s and healthy doesn't really matter. <laughs> like they could just they could just admit that, and that would be perfectly in keeping with what the science shows us. That's what other countries are doing in terms of uh, some of our peer countries in Northern Europe, et cetera. In, in, what, in terms of what age range they're recommending it for, yeah, we have no idea. By the way, what happened to DeMar Hamlin? And I do think a lot of the immediate rush to blame it on vaccines is is really gross, given that you know we don't know, and also given that look, frankly, football can be dangerous. You know, we all see people getting tackled all the time. You know, we know that the concussions are are real or people have experienced that. Looks to me like he took a you know, it was kind of a this right neck and upper upper uh, uh, torso uh, hit that, you know, maybe one in a million times that causes some kind of really, uh, really rough cardiac episode having nothing to do with anything else. I still think the I think the issue, you know, absolutely merits Further study to make sure uh, that we know what kind of effect uh, both the vaccines and COVID will have on uh, on the the you know the bodies of otherwise healthy young people. But um, but, uh, but, you know, but, but, but but yeah, that's my two cents. of the But Robbie, situation. I have
1: to say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not all on them for believing these conspiracy theories, right? Because the medical establishment has behaved in such a sketchy way about hiding from us things that are actually true right? That, of course, people are then going to be less likely to believe them. And, of co- you know, if you have a company that says, I demand to have, full, you know, full protection from liability for this thing, we're going to force everybody to inject into their arms, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, people are going to be suspicious. Of course, they're going to jump to conclusions. And of course, they're going to feel like there's a high likelihood that they're not being told the truth, because indeed, they have not been told the truth. So I think that responsibility for people jumping to conclusions is very much shared. Um, you know, of course, we'll wait and see what happens and of course we wish the best for damar hamlin such great news that he seems to be recuperating really really love to see it. it just it just fills you with with joy to see that he's going to be okay hopefully god willing
0: absolutely all right we'll have more rising right after this Brian Koberger, the man accused of killing the four Idaho college students, faces four charges of first-degree murder. These charges carry sentences that include life in prison and potentially the death penalty. Since his arrest, new evidence used by investigators to find the suspect has been revealed. One of the two roommates who were not attacked saw a man in the home on the night of the crime and was able to describe a figure who was 5'10 or taller, male, not very muscular, with bushy eyebrows.
1: It was also revealed that DNA left at the crime scene on a knife sheath was linked to DNA from trash at Koberger's parents' home in Pennsylvania. Joining us now to discuss is senior national correspondent at News Nation, Brian Enton. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: So, are we any closer to having any sense of um, potential motive in this horrific um, uh, quadruple murder?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question because we've gotten so much new information in the 18 page probable cause affidavit, but it makes no mention of motive. Um, I've been in touch with the families. I was talking to them last night. They still don't know of motive. Uh, so there's no indication that police um, have anything on motive right now. I mean, it's certainly possible that they know something behind the scenes. Uh, there is a court hearing on Thursday here in Idaho, where you may find out a little more. But if there's a preliminary hearing a couple weeks from now, uh, that's likely when then when we might really find out what they know.
0: Can you help us understand um, how it could be that one of the surviving roommates uh, sees? Koberger, presumably a hooded figure, hears some some crying or screaming, and and this is while he's or after or at the time of the murders, like very early in the morning, 4 a.m. or something. But then the police aren't called, the bodies aren't uh, aren't uh, found till the next till till well later, till the actual morning, like 11 or noon. So is there? I think a lot of people have questions about you know with the surviving roommates. So then they waited hours and hours to, to alert or what were they? I mean, they, there's a lot of speculation about why that could be. Maybe they were just very tired. Maybe they had been intoxicated themselves. Maybe, I mean, there could be benign reasons for waiting later. But I think a lot of people, myself included, are very confused about exactly how that ends up happening.
5: Yeah, no, totally. I think that was probably the big jaw-dropping tidbit from the affidavit because we were all under the assumption that the surviving roommates were asleep but one of them, at least Dylan, uh, was was awake. And we also thought they were sleeping on the bottom floor where there were no killings, but Dylan was actually up on the second floor where where the murders happened. So um, there there is this question, she she says she was awake, that she heard screams, that she heard a man's voice, that she heard the dog barking, and then that uh, just after 4 a.m. she saw the killer uh, walk by her bedroom that she saw him wearing a black mask covering his mouth and nose, um, and that she, you know, she was able to describe his height, his build, the fact that he had bushy eyebrows, and that he walked out towards the back uh, sliding glass door. And then here's what you, what you talk about. I mean, that was just after 4 a.m. It wasn't until 11:58 a.m. So hours and hours later that the 911 call was made and that police finally came out. Um, you know, she says in the affidavit, she's quoted saying that she was frozen in fear, essentially. Um, and certainly that's a possibility. She went back into the bedroom and locked the door. Uh, the families of the victims right now, I interviewed um, Kaylee's sister last night on News Nation. And she basically said that everyone should stop the judgment that, you know, Dylan's a young girl and no one knows how they would react in that situation. Uh, but but it's certainly very interesting that it took so long to. Um, for her to call, or for whoever to call nine one one, and certainly she'll be a witness at some point, whether it be at the preliminary hearing or if there is a trial. And I'm sure we'll find out more uh, exactly, you know, what what she was going through in that moment.
0: Hmm.
1: Brian, tell us what you can about the families and how they're dealing with this. Do, do they feel is there any sense of relief that somebody has been arrested? Where are they at in terms of their emotional journey dealing with this horror?
5: So, yeah, I think there was definitely relief when the arrest was announced, Um, especially with the Gonzalez family. They told me they almost felt this feeling of joy because they had just been living, you know, just in agony and and felt like they couldn't even grieve Kaylee's death until there was an arrest. So, So there was relief. But I think they're almost like overwhelmed now when you think about the court process just beginning. I mean, they were in court last week. It's a it's a small town. It's a small courtroom. They sit very, very close to where the man accused of killing. Their daughter is. You can imagine how overwhelming that would feel, and then just knowing that you know they've they've said they want to be at every hearing, and this is going to be a very very long process. I mean, all our indications are that he may plead not guilty. That he's saying that he's innocent. Brian Koberger is, at least according to his public defender, when he was in Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I just think they feel overwhelmed knowing that they have all of that that lies ahead.
0: What uh, what have we learned uh, that's new about uh, Koberger? I, you know, I was looking at some of the reporting. I hear history of heroin use, but maybe that he'd gotten past that, that he bullied as a kid, kind of not social, but he seemed to have some friends. Some people have come forward and said they knew him and he was n- not particularly shy, but, you know, not out, not outgoing, but they knew him and he was fine. Um I I, yeah, I hear a lot of, you know, discussion or debate about, like, was he a highly intelligent person? He was studying criminology. You know, what uh, what what more should we know or, or do we know about him?
5: Yeah, so, you know, it doesn't appear that he had a ton of friends or any ex-girlfriends or anything like that that we've been able to find. You know, we've, we've heard stories that he was bullied as a kid, that he was an overweight kid and bullied. He did have a drug problem, according to some friends at one point, but overcame that. Um, Seemed like a socially awkward guy from most of the people that we've talked to. Uh, You know, obviously an extensive knowledge of criminal justice, you know, got his master's in it and then was in the process of getting his Ph.D. in criminology at Washington State University. He was sort of built up initially as like this, you know person who was able to get away with this and then you know almost like genius but but really when you look at you know the affidavit i mean he made a lot of mistakes which ultimately led to him getting captured mainly that he left you know he had a knife and he left the knife sheath which is essentially the cover for the knife he left that at the scene and that is what contained the dna The the button on the knife sheath had dna on it which they were able to connect back to Koberger. so that was a big mistake one of the creepiest things of of the whole thing that, that i find is that According to the police, you know, his cell phone was tracked uh, going back to the house after the murders at about 9.15 a.m. hours after the murders. And there's all sorts of questions about, you know, was he going back to sort of see if the police were there to sort of get the thrill of it all and sort of like circus like atmosphere? You know, there's other um, killers in the past that have gotten almost a high off of that. Or could he have been going back realizing that he left the knife sheath there? Um, and going back mm. to maybe want to go back in the house and retrieve it, uh, you know, we don't we don't know the answers to those questions right and now.
0: Do we? And we don't know whether uh, the the victims knew him at all or, or had had any interactions with him previously. That's we we just don't know that yet, correct?
5: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We don't know, and and as recently as last night, the families tell me they still haven't come up with any specific um, connections. Early on, there was. Um sort of thought there was some Instagram profiles that followed some of the victims. But um, we've realized a lot of that stuff was created after his name came out. You know, all these like people create fake social media uh, profiles and stuff online. Um, you know, trying to look like they're him. So none of that has officially
0: connected back mm, disgusting
1: and 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 did you so did the affidavit say that the victims were alive when were awake when they were killed? I, my understanding had been that that was, unknown before is that something that was addressed in the in the affidavit
5: well we know that at least some of the victims had defensive wounds which would indicate that they were awake at some point trying to fight back um ethan uh one of the victims ethan he was found not in um a bed but actually on the ground sort of in the hallway which is another Uh. indication that he may have been awake and trying to fight back so it's it's just so sad to think about what went on um, in mm. that house and then also what the surviving roommate heard there I mean there was screaming there was talking there was you know crying um so it, it doesn't appear that they were just like totally killed while they were fully asleep or anything like that
0: mm, it's horrifying well Horrific. Brian thank you for continuing to cover this uh you know a lot of people interested obviously and want to see justice done uh, we'll have you back as soon as there's more to cover thank you so much thanks for having me and we'll have more rising right after this President Biden stopped at the U.S.-Mexico border on his way to Mexico City, where he announced new crackdowns on asylum seekers amid the record number of migrants arriving at the border. Biden says that his administration will now deny people from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Haiti the chance to apply for asylum if they cross the Mexican border without authorization between official ports of entry. Here's part of Biden's address on
3: the matter my administration is taking several steps to stiffen enforcement for those who try to come without a legal right to stay. And to put in place a faster process, I emphasize a faster process, to decide a claim of asylum. Someone says I'm coming because I'm escaping oppression. Well, there's got to be a way to determine that much quicker.
0: Biden goes on to say, my message is this, if you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, or have agreed to begin a journey to America, do not do not just show up at the border. As The Intercept's Max Granger points out, it is legal to arrive when seeking asylum, saying glaring factual error in this headline. At the New York Times, seeking asylum is legal regardless of method of entry. Please issue a correction, a more accurate headline. Biden announces major crackdown on asylum in violation of U.S. and international law. Human rights groups and immigration advocates have actually denounced the move. What say you, Bacha.
1: Um I just think that this is <laughs> just ridiculous. Um let's start with the fact that he's telling people not to come but he's authorized 30,000 um parolees from each of those countries for people who we know do not qualify for asylum. I mean, everybody acting like these people have an asylum case knows that that is not true. We know that these are economic migrants. And look, we can say, look, we have room in this country for economic migrants, right? But essentially by calling them people who are seeking asylum, by calling them asylees, by calling them refugees, you are essentially making it um, de facto The rule that they're going to come here and be forced to work illegally under the table for decades to come because they're not going to qualify for asylum and then they're not going to leave. Um, uh, They're using Title 42, the Biden administration, an expanded version of Title 42 to do this. Title 42, which, recall, the Biden administration itself tried to get rid of. So it only still exists because the Supreme Court opposed the Biden administration's attempt to axe this Trump era policy because the truth Is they're right. We're no longer in a pandemic. But right now, (laughs) Title 42 is effectively the only means Border Patrol has for turning people away. You know, we know what works in terms of securing the border because we had a president just two short years ago who was extremely effective at doing that. And on day one, the first thing President Biden did was get rid of everything that worked and then proceed to try his best to get rid of everything else. So, you know, they've been telegraphing to the cartels, they've been telegraphing to the migrants, they've been telegraphing to everybody that the border is open. The cartels heard them loud and clear. Essentially, the Democratic Party has turned the cartels into a jobs fair. They are using the cartels to import cheap labor, a new slave class to work service industry jobs and to drive down the wages of the American working class. It's absolutely deplorable. This is too little, too late. Well, but Bacha, how can you say that they're
0: saying that they're, you know, giving intellectual or vocal support to the kind of cartel mindset? If I mean, Biden just said, don't do exactly that. Don't come here that way. Uh, you, If you want to come to the U.S., you need a sponsor and you need to go through all these steps and you need to board a plane flight. You can't just rush the border. Isn't that what what he just said
1: i mean he but he, he said that but then he coupled that with thirty thousand um guaranteed parolees for people from all of those four countries who can find a sponsor in america right so on the one hand yeah it's great that he said don't come right but on the other hand he's sort of with one hand he's saying don't come and with the other hand he's offering you know these people basically a ticket a ticket in right so so w- what is that actually going to achieve uh, I, it's, it's just mind boggling. I think to normal Americans, they look at President Biden, and they cannot understand, like, why did he get rid of everything that President Trump had done that was so effective, like literally from day one, that was his promise. And we saw... 2 million, 2.2 million people immediately rushed the border, got the message, including the cartels, of course, right? There's no real desire on the part of the Democratic Party to address immigration. And the reason for that is because, you know, the issue of immigration is not a political one. It's a class one. Working class Americans, their jobs are the ones that are threatened by people who, who come here, mass immigration, educated elites who are now the Democratic Party's base, right, they can afford to have all of these pieties and talk about, you know, refugees and asylum because these people aren't threatening their jobs. So at the end of the day, I mean, I just feel that the the, the Democratic Party has every incentive Mm -hmm. to keep gaslighting Americans on this and do nothing about it. And that's exactly what we're seeing here.
0: Well, you and I disagree on this a little bit. I don't, I mean, I don't care, frankly, if they're threatening people's jobs. That's fine with me. Uh, what I care about is terrible. Is Robbie, the people? Terrible, is the communities terrible, terrible. bordering the border overrun with tent cities and you know Boys. bad condition? The humanitarian condition bad for the immigrants, bad for the people who live there. I understand their frustration, and I think the process by which most immigrants are coming that way is really bad and needs to be fixed. And would best be fixed by saying, okay, don't do that. The asylum thing is stupid. But more, it, here's the process, and it's a process that can be, that's, Easy and doesn't take years, and then you can come here. You can fly in. You don't have to. You don't have to go with the cartels. You don't have to cross, you know, muddy rivers. You don't have to live in a tent um, in El Paso or wherever. You can just enter the country and work and contribute and pay taxes, and America will be better off economically. And yes, some people who are competing for the lowest rung jobs maybe they ha- they face more competition, but. Uh, the, but the price of food and goods and everything goes down for everyone, including those people, and then maybe they can get lifted up into better positions. I think that's a better system um, than one where you know we deliberately try to protect the l- low jobs for our existing workforce, which is not economically efficient for anyone. And, and, and the, the big thing to me is, is addressing the, just this chaos of having people coming in under conditions that aren't good for them and that are clearly prompting a lot of, I think, understandable frustration in, you know, in places like Texas and, and so on. But, I mean, frankly, what, what I heard from Biden is, I guess, along those lines, um, obviously much more has to be done. And ultimately, Congress needs to do something, which um, I don't know if there's any chance of that.
1: Well, hopefully with this uh, with this new Congress, uh, you know, one of the conditions that uh, Kevin McCarthy had to agree to in order to placate the rebel faction was about, um, you know, Texas border um, legislation. So hopefully we'll see some movement on that front. But you're totally right. This is, you know, it's the the administration plus Congress.
0: Mm -hmm. And you can't use (laughs) I, I am fine, though, to not use you know, COVID justification policies, I, I got to be, you know, not a hypocrite about that. All of the, we are not in a COVID emergency anymore. Biden has said we are not in a COVID emergency, any, emergency anymore. That means COVID uh, policies that were put in place that I was, many of them I was against in the first place. And I not, never wanted to give the government this authority, in, you know, when it's an emergency, which sounds like something that could be very easily abused. But that's all got to go. That includes um, Title 42, in my view. But um, but we'll see.
1: Yeah. It- Absolutely. Yeah. And they have to have the courage to say, look, we know which countries people have legitimate asylum claims mm-hmm. from and which ones don't. There are people who have legitimate asylum claims who are actually being persecuted for being gay across the world, who are waiting for a chance to come to America and have their asylum case heard. And that is not going to happen because economic migrants are flooding the system and they do not. Ha- we, somebody has to be able to say the truth. And it's just it, it's just it's it's mind numbing that, that you can't get that out of the president. Um or or most of our politicians. But anyway, I guess we'll have to leave it at that.
0: <laughs> More rising right after this. Stay with us. Officials in Houston are looking for the public's help in identifying a diner patron they say shot and killed a would-be armed robber. Late last week, after the suspect attempted to shake down customers for their belongings, according to surveillance footage, the unknown bystander shot the robber five times before apparently collecting other customers' stolen belongings from the man's body and returning them, he then fled the scene.
1: A KHOU legal analyst told the network that law enforcement likely is trying to find out whether the bystander was in fear for his life or the lives of the people around him, that that is key to his case for self-defense. Robbie, is that actually key to his uh, case for self-defense if he's the other guy was wielding a gun?
0: yes, uh that apparently matters um so we played the first part of that clip uh you know, the the rest is very graphic, so I don't think we're gonna play it. you can you know find it online if, if you're curious, but what happens is so the assailant has a gun he has a gun he's pointed at at people he's collecting wallets um it's the uh it's the customer um in the uh left side of the screen who's, who's uh kind of got a bald head, a white guy in a on, on that th- that left booth. As soon as the robber walks past him, that guy gets up and just sh- keep, shoots him a bunch of times. I end up hearing a total of nine shots. Maybe only five of them hit him. So I, I think from my view is, is that it is self-defense. I mean, the guy was robbing the place. He had a gun. You know, you don't know what's going to happen. I would argue at least eight of the shots that I hear look like self defense to me. I think the only potential problem for this guy the for the self the the self defense guy so he he shoots him a bunch of times the robber collapses is down is not moving I, I might be dead at that point it's, it's clearly is out. he picks up the gun and then he shoots him again in what looks like the head so I think that final shot could potentially get the guy in trouble um I mean, I, you know, a jury might feel different. They might say that the whole thing is justified given what was going on, uh, but probably that's the part of it people will struggle with because he'd already taken the gun for the Now, he could argue he doesn't know how many guns the guy has. He don't. Maybe he saw him twitch or saw him move. Obviously, it's a stressful situation. Can you imagine, you know, shooting an armed robber? And, uh, you know, I, I think we can all understand not reacting perfectly in, in that situation, but... You're you're not you're not supposed to take that additional kill shot after you've disarmed the person. Um, you know what's your takeaway?
1: I think um, like somebody could say, "Look, why did he have to shoot him so many times?" Once you shoot somebody, once you um, defend yourself in an aggressive way, you have no way of knowing how they are going to respond to that, right? Mm-hmm. You should assume they're going to respond to that with as much force as they can muster. So I think you're right. He could have had another gun. He could have had a knife. Once you once you are a person who is aiming a gun at other people, especially defenseless people, you've sort of forfeited your right, right, to not be met with that same force. No, I, I
0: agree with that, Yeah.
1: And, and yeah, so so yeah, I I know I, I watched the whole video. He does take another shot after he disarmed him. To me, that looked like instinct. I mean, this person is clearly somebody who's been in, trained, mm-hmm. right, for situations like this, it seems to me. And at that point, it seemed to me like instinct took over. Um, I, I find it really hard to, I mean, on the one hand, yes, I could see the argument that that was no longer self-defense because he had taken away the gun and the guy was clearly down. On the other hand, what if he had another gun? And also, you know, is, is that really a message that we want to send? Of course, there's a Legal question, but aside from that, I mean, this man is a hero to me. Mm -hmm. He, he, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't matter if the person was only going to rob these people. He waved a gun in their faces, and this man stood up for them. And I I think for a lot of Americans, um, you see that and you feel. Like that that is there's something very heroic about that and very grateful that that person was there on the scene. And if you were, God forbid, one of those patrons, you would want somebody to be there and you would want him furthermore to be protected by the law for what he did.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And and maybe the police want to talk to him and ask, well, you know, did you see him move again or thought you see him moving or something? And then they'll say, OK, case closed. That's the end of the investigation. Like you, I, I don't want to see someone punished for defending, you know, people like who knows what that guy was going to do after he robbed that. You know, he could have gotten into or he could have gotten into in a shootout later, um, harmed some kind of harmed bystanders, you know, been on a, a chase. Like, who knows what was going to happen? He had already—I agree with Like, he had forfeited his right. People are—you don't have to wait for the robber to start shooting before you're allowed to shoot. Like, you, you're not—there's you, no—it yeah. would be ridiculous to have a societal kind of rule that you have to wait till you're being shot to defend yourself, like, when you're being robbed. Like, you don't—there's no, there's no right for someone to rob you. They—it's it's the contrary. They're, they do not get to rob you. You can defend yourself. Um so so right if i mean if i was on the jury i'd probably acquit the guy obviously i want to know a little bit more about the circumstances without that i, I think we want to you know be more permissive of self defense and you know we've seen cases remember that that new york case right the uh oh, which the you elbow, talked about yeah. a lot yes yes where uh, the bodega uh cashier guy maybe it was the owner the guy working there and he defended himself and was initially charged and then those charges were dropped partly i think because of the kind of public pressure of people saying, oh, my, this person is the victim. He defended himself. How dare you? Uh, you charge the person. So, you know, we have a real actual contempt for self-defense coming from some people in the kind of prosecutor uh, a, a setting that is that is very bad. And I would not want to see that replicated here.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, (laughs) they'll never prosecute the criminals, but if you stand up to them, suddenly you find yourself like Jose Alba on Rikers Island. Again, Alba, someone who seemed to clearly know what he was doing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, very effectively... um, um, while being stabbed by the guy's girlfriend, managed to, 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 um, to neutralize the threat to his life, seemed mm-hmm. very clear that he was um, you know, feeling threatened for his life. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, there, there, we, we ran a piece by um, Jeff Charles, friend of the show, recently at, at um, Newsweek, and he argued that um, gun control laws are actually racist because they prevent black people from having the means of defending themselves against criminals. Um, and I think that there's a lot of merit to that argument.
0: Yeah, I think we want criminals to think twice about whether if they rob a store or a restaurant that there might be someone who's armed and it might cost them everything to do that and maybe they'll think twice about engaging in casual robbery. I think most of us would say that would be a good thing if that was a concern more people about to commit crimes would have before they would commit crimes like like robbery, like assault, etc. Yes, et cetera.
1: <laughs> and in fact, we know criminals frequently say that um, if they know that there's the presence of a gun at a place, that is v- very much a deterrent for committing yeah. a crime there. And um, um, uh, Jeff had a statistic in his piece where he said that over 160,000 Americans save their own lives by being armed a year. Um, so, and that's a uh, that's uh, I forget where the statistic is from. is a, a national statistic um, from the government. So,
0: all right. Well, we'll keep uh, <laughs> we'll keep an eye on this story. See if Anything comes or if he's charged with anything, and we'll have more rising right after this. Media personality Andrew Tate, who was arrested on December 29th in Romania in connection to a rape and human trafficking investigation, tweeted a link to an article on a Romanian news website called Spy News on Sunday. That claimed he was attacked. In the tweet, he wrote, The Matrix has attacked me, but they misunderstand. You cannot kill an idea. Hard to kill.
1: The article claimed that one of the brothers was taken to the hospital after a routine medical check while in custody. The U.S. Sun reports. So, Mm. Robbie, I don't know. I can't help it. Look, maybe he was actually attacked. But I have to say, this strikes me as something that women do a lot when they want sympathy, which is try to cast themselves as a victim in a certain way. You know, someone will tweet something, you know, unpopular, get a lot of pushback and then talk about how they're being harassed, how they're getting all of this hate speech, how that should be regulated. Right. It's a very, I feel, feminized approach, which is to say Pity me. Have sympathy for me. I am a victim. You can't hold me responsible for this. You know, see me as the one who needs your pity. And, you know, which is all of which is just to say Andrew Tate is supposed to be this macho masculine, you know, paragon. Right. And I've always felt about him that he's a fraud. And I've always felt about him that there are so many upstanding, good men out there defending traditional masculinity in a way that doesn't lead directly to accusations of, you know, sex trafficking. They they, they stand up for traditional masculinity in a way that also elevates women and also you know, protects women, right? Instead of the way he does it, which is to elevate masculinity and then denigrate women. You know, those are not the two choices, right? Like total um, genderless society where we don't need men, we don't need women, everything is fluid versus Andrew Tate, right? You know, this machismo that insists on degrading women and possibly allegedly even trafficking men. There's a much better alternative in the middle, which is, you know, a healthy regard for traditional. traditional masculinity for the role that men as providers as protectors play in a society in a way that protects and defends women femininity and all the things that we require from that duality so i know that that sounds hopelessly conservative but i just feel that you know tate has sort of forced this dichotomy that i think erases like you know something in the middle that's actually valuable
0: yeah. I mean, the success of the whole kind of uh, what a pickup artist community or, you know, the figures like Andrew Tate, who I guess had been successful, though, you know, we don't really see the the balance sheet on how successful it is. And now he's facing possible prison charges. But, you know, build some kind of uh, profile or make money. Um, convincing really desperate young men, kind of directionless young men, young men who've had very bad luck with women or or just, like, way too socially anxious, I guess, to even talk to women or go on dates, and they convince them that, well, if you're more like, you know, I'll show you how to do it, and you got to, you know, really treat them like crap, and you have to be, you know, horrible, and it's all about... I don't know, sex and really demeaning women and, you know, making money and smoking cigars in this really kind of joyless way. Like he doesn't, he doesn't make it seem fun (laughs) and happy. He makes it seem really awful and parasitic and like unhealthy. Um, you know, that's not like, that's not a good, I mean, you don't need to come to me for dating advice or anything, but like just be nicer to people and you'll be successful a little bit in terms of, uh, in terms of dating. Like what he does is just um, is just, and is also not, as you allude to, is not particularly conservative or socially conservative. I mean, he's he right. was accused of, you know, ha- m- forcing uh, women that he was doing his cam girl show with, and making them like tattoo his name, like that's to their bodies. What is socially conservative about that? I don't I don't yeah. get why he was um, kind of being claimed, and not universally, but by some on the right as a, someone that should be defended or, or be associated with, I, I truly, I don't get it. Um, and, and now, I don't know if he was actually attacked. He uses attack exactly as you say in this very broad sense. If people are criticizing him, he's being attacked. It's like when he said, he said earlier, you know, I know they're going to come for me because I'm just too, you know, I'm too much of a free spirit. The system must destroy me. I know they'll come and try to arrest me. And then people were like, look, they're, they're coming to arrest him. He's a prophet. He knew. Well, if you're doing illegal things, you also know you're eventually <laughs> going to get arrested. That doesn't prove that you're some kind of a prophet. That just proves you knew what you were doing
4: was illegal. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think I, I will say uh, something I hear a lot from uh, my single girlfriends is that um, it's not just that the pickup artist thing has, has sort of tapered off. It's that... Um, men now are very hesitant to approach women in traditional settings, even where women are used to being picked up, like in bars, um, you know, there's because of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. So there's been this impact socially where men now feel that that's, you know, an act of aggression that they don't want to be accused of. And it, it's really starting to have an impact on, like, real-world mating, which is, like, extremely important if we intend to be around as a species oh, Yeah, I I have,
0: I have endless criticisms of <laughs> Of the Me Too movement, and then how it just became a kind of policing about bad dates. The Aziz Ansari thing I always bring yes. up is just like a, such a clear indication of the whole thing going totally off the rails, and just kind of right. people wanting to, you know, celebrate victimhood and make victimhood a personality. But but people like Andrew Tate again, given what he's accused of, we don't know the validity of it. He deserves due process, just like everyone else. Maybe you know, it's it's not to my mind beyond the realm of conceivability that. What he was doing was very gross but was legal because the the people involved in the cam, the cam girls and et cetera consented or they weren't literally forced to do it. It might not be illegal. I don't know. That's something that, you know, needs to be borne out. I don't think that's totally impossible, uh, et cetera. But, but, you know, all that said, clearly what he's doing is so, like, you know, gross and 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 degrading and disrespectful. Like, that's the kind of thing that gives fuel to the whole Me Too. uh, A legitimate target of Me Too grievances are figures, I think, like him um, that really, you know, give a bad name to men everywhere, I guess, and have (laughs) helped helped (laughs) wreck relations between men and women in the last few years.
1: Well, I think that's how the liberals would want us to see it, right? right? That he represents anybody defending the traditional values of masculinity. But I think that's kind of wishful thinking on their part. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lane between, you mm-hmm. know, the the sort of um, feminist agenda that I think has really overreached and then the Andrew Tate that allegedly is actually sex trafficking, right? And it's the kind of much more traditional view that says, you know, we can defend traditional masculinity. It has a role in society. It's extremely important for families, for children, even for women, mm-hmm. um, you know, that there's something in between there where there are a lot of wholesome Figures, even influencers, doing what Andrew Tate does, like the focus on him seems to me to be the desire by liberals to erase the much more wholesome version, um, which is not about sex trafficking, right? Um, But about you know um, more traditional values.
0: I I was watching a little bit of a YouTuber uh, criticizing and responding to Tate. I believe it was Vosh Vosh, who's I've not watched a lot of his videos, but he had a pretty good one responding to Tate and pointing out. Uh, So Tate's describing, you know, uh, he has all these cars. That's part of what got him into that feud with Greta Thunberg. Um, Describing how, but he only likes having a nice car because only he can have it. It's about status and feeling better than other people. Like it has, it only has value because other people would covet it. And Vouch was was talking about how taken to an extreme or even just on its face, that's such a sad way to live, to only want something because somebody else would value it. It doesn't, like, have any intrinsic value to you. It's not something you'd like to have, but you only get some kind of satisfaction out of it because it enhances your status and makes you feel better than other people who don't have that. I mean, that's such a sad way to go about life. It's like... No, pursue things that give you, that give, provide value to you that are of your interest that you want because they make your life more meaningful. If, if your life is only made more meaningful by, by some comparison to others, that's a really toxic mindset to be in that will leave you very deeply unsatisfied. And that by itself, I think, makes him a terrible role model for a young men or really for anyone. Um, it shows a, a very sad hollowness to his thinking, I, I, I believe.
1: But I think the point you made earlier is so trenchant, right, um, that he—it se- there's no joy in it. It's joyless. It seems like work for him. And indeed, if the sex trafficking al- allegations turn out to be true, it was work for him, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great point. In fact, the champions of sex workers, right, and the, the sex work economy are, again, liberals. So I think categorizing him as some sort of a conservative might be a bit of a mistake. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, we will uh, have more rising tomorrow when we will speak with investigative reporter Addy Ads about the situation going on in Brazil. Bacha, it has been a pleasure to see you this Monday. Great being
1: with you, Robbie. I'll be watching you tomorrow.
0: Thank you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere. Podcasts are available. Roku, other streaming platforms. Check us out, and I'll see you back here tomorrow.